Hey there, and welcome to the Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast of Crossroads Community Church here in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership with God. My name's Charlie, and I'm a pastor here at the church. I'm Jeff, also one of the pastors here at Crossroads. That's right. We got Pastor Jeff Stockett with us today, who actually shared the message this week coming out of his sabbatical. And for some people, Jeff, they may not have any idea what a sabbatical is. In the academic world, we have them in the, you know, in the pastoral world. So, like, what was a sabbatical? What did you guys do? Just tell us about, you know, kind of this idea. Sure, yeah. Sabbaticals intended to be a time of purposeful disconnection from the day-to-day grind and norms that we all experience here at the church. That's a wonderful gift, by the way, to be part of a church and a community. And our board of stewards, of course, emphasizes this. Uh, that really pours into the pastoral staff in such a way that we value opportunities for the pastors to actually get away and break away from normative routines here at the church. So it was a great time. We were gone six weeks, uh, time to reflect and to reassess what the last season has been like, to ask the Lord what the future season might hold for us, to have time together with our kids, uh, time together just Bethany and I together. Uh, It was great. It was a wonderful time to get away. That's awesome, man. You guys went up to Canada. Yeah, we took about three weeks during the hardest sabbatical and drove up through British Columbia and then parts of Alberta as well. Uh, we went as far north as Jasper, Alberta, which is quite a ways from here, but beautiful drive if you have the chance to, to do that. And I heard really, really good cheeseburgers up in, uh, up in Canada. I wish that were true. We won't say anything more about the Canadian <laughs> cheeseburgers. Apparently, you can't get it medium rare. They, they only do medium. They only do extra crispy. Extra crispy. I'm sorry. Which, if it were a chicken sandwich, I'm all about. Yeah. No, my Lisette just torches everything. I like a little, you know, kind of a little pink in the middle. I get you. No, but it was a great message this week, really coming out of your sabbatical and your expectations going into sabbatical. And then, uh, as God so often does, we see it in scripture, we see it in our own lives. He uh, has his own agenda, and it was way better. And we got to benefit from it. It really was a lot of great, great stuff. So we're going to give Jeff's message a listen, and then we'll get together and talk about it. Well, welcome to church this morning. Welcome to Crossroads if you're new or visiting us. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to be able to share the word with you this morning. Uh, we're right in between two series. We're moving into a new series starting this fall. Pastor Jim's going to kick that off here in a week or two. And we're just coming out of what our summer series was, if you've been here, a series on ikad, this word in Hebrew that means alone. You know, God alone is God. There are no others like him, no others who can compare or compete with him. He stands at the top of the heap. He is separate and alone. And he showed again and again, and he still shows again and again, that he is for his people, that he loves his people, that he forgives his people. He delights in his people. And we see this in Scripture, and we heard story after story throughout the series of him doing that very thing. I found just one deficiency in the series. Uh, It was me, by the way, the deficiency. Because though scripture is very clear about who God is and how he operates and how he acts, I don't always live in a way that reflects that I believe that to be true. So I've been wrestling over this summer series. I've been wrestling with why my life doesn't match up with the truth that I know is found in scripture. And anytime we find that the word gets in our stuff, all up in our biz, and makes us reflect in this way, it's actually positive. Yeah? We're supposed to wrestle. We're supposed to feel angst. We're supposed to feel conviction when our lives don't align with what the Word says. And so I wrestled mightily this summer through this series. 
And so today is kind of an invitation for you into the journey I was on over summer as I struggled with that Ikad series, the belief that God is alone, that he's sufficient, he's enough. Some of you know this, that uh, the church graciously sent my wife and I on sabbatical this summer. We were gone for six weeks. Uh, we know you missed us terribly. <laughs> we know that. And we missed you as well, of course. Uh, absence does make the heart grow fonder, as it turns out. We did miss you all here and thought of you often and prayed for you as we were gone. But absence does something else as well. It enables us to purposefully remove ourselves from the day-to-day -day grind and the grime, in some cases, of what the world throws at us so that we can actually reflect purposefully on the last season of life and anticipate what the next season of life might look like. That's the purpose in a nutshell for sabbatical, to reconnect with the Lord, to process, to get away, to figure out what the Lord's calling us towards going forward. Now, for me, I do my best thinking at the beach. Any other beachgoers? Come on, here we go. Something about the, the crashing of the waves, the consistency of that, just the sheer size and scope of the ocean, it really helps kind of center me a bit and enables me to process in ways like I can't in some other types of geography. Bethany is a mountain girl. She loves the solitude of the mountains. She loves the cool, crisp air. She loves the isolation that it brings. So on sabbatical, we went to the mountains. <laughs> Anybody who knows anything about marriage understands what I just said. But something interesting happened to me and within me as we marched towards the beginning of our sabbatical season. Even though we had the time all scheduled out and we knew what we were doing and where we were going, the weeks were planned, you know, we were going to have some counseling time, some solitude time, some family time, we had all these things parsed out. I found myself actually approaching sabbatical with this sense of, like, impending doom. Like, it was almost dread, And that was really unsettling because this is a great gift the church has given, right? a great gift the church is investing uh, this measure of time for us to be away and to reflect. So how could I respond by feeling nervous or anxious or unsettled by this? It was really puzzling to me. And I'm fascinated by this, the, the human condition that we all find ourselves in, because though we like to maintain an illusion of having everything all together, an illusion of control over our environment and our kids, Help us, Jesus, with those ones. Um, we really don't have control of much at all, do we? Like, we can't predict the weather. We can't predict political outcomes. We can't predict even how we are going to feel when we're entering a certain season of life. Have you noticed this? We don't predict much, and we don't control much. But I do have to say this. When we become believers in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. The word is clear about this. And the Holy Spirit, who's known as the helper, comes to us to convict us of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. This is the activity that the Holy Spirit engages in. And this is not a one-time action, by the way. It's not like the Holy Spirit shows up when somebody needs conviction of sin, so they come to Jesus, and then he, like, pieces out and is, like, traveling salesman sort of thing, and he goes to the next house. No, that's not the activity and agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually resides and sets up shop within like Romans 5.5 5 tells us. We know how dearly God loves us. How do we know? Because he's given us the Holy Spirit to do what? To fill our hearts with his love. There is residency involved here in the agency of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
He's given to us as a seal or a deposit, a guarantee of the inheritance that's been sealed for us in Christ, according to Ephesians 1. So I have found in my walk with the Lord, whenever I start to feel unsettled like this or stirred up or angsty, often, not always, but often, I find it's the Holy Spirit trying to get my attention about something for some reason. And Paul warns us, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about this, that we can actually quench or suppress the work of the Holy Spirit within us by ignoring and stuffing down deep the feelings that we have, right? Anybody else do this? We can do that if we choose to. And let me be clear, I am not suggesting that every feeling or every impulse we ever get is of the Holy Spirit, okay? That is not correct. That's not scriptural. I wouldn't suggest that. Nor am I meaning to imply or suggest that we need to be governed by how we feel in every moment. That's called lunacy. <laughs> Feelings are unreliable, they're fickle, they change all the time, but we do need to be willing to ask the question when we feel something and when we are unsettled, what might the Spirit be saying to us in this moment and in this season? What's the purpose here? So, in the days leading up to the start of sabbatical, I tried to do this very thing. I tried to spend some time figuring out what's going on internally that something that I should be excited about I'm filled with fear and dread about what's going on here. And the conclusion was this. I was scared, like literally scared of sabbatical. Scared to give the Lord that much space to actually speak and do his work in my life and in my heart. Because we know who the Lord is. He actually speaks to us when he's given space and when we're willing to listen. He spoke creation into being after all. He's been speaking ever since through the prophets, through scripture, through Jesus the incarnation, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through you, fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord who also have the same spirit at work within you. You often can be the Holy Spirit speaking to one another as well. He speaks to us when we're postured in a position to listen. The problem is that over the last few years, for me, when I have carved out space to intentionally hear from the Lord and been willing to listen to what the Lord says, it's resulted in hearing some really hard things for me. The Holy Spirit has exposed in me sin that I either had long ignored or suppressed or in some cases flat out been ignorant of. And that sin had to get drawn out of darkness into light so it could be put to death. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And to be healthy, to be fully human, we actually need to have integration between what we could call our inner self, what's going on internally, and the outer self, that person that we project ourselves to be around others. Those things are actually supposed to be aligned with one another. It turns out the Lord cares a great deal about this. You know what the opposite of integration is? Disintegration. That doesn't sound pleasant. It's not. We're not meant to live that way as disintegrated souls. We are supposed to be integrated with inner man and outer man being the same man. God wants all parts of us to be holy, inner and outer included. And we know he cares about this because scripture tells us people judge by outward appearance, outer self language. But the Lord looks at the heart, inner self language. Jesus himself picks up on this when he's talking about the Pharisees, those, the religious leaders of his day in the first century. You are like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, outer man. 
but filled on the inside, inner man, with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. That's really stark and really strong language here. We could say it this way if we wanted to parse it down. The message we find in Scripture sort of on repeat is that the Father wants to align our inner self and our outer self with himself. And that is the work and agency of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bringing about an ever-increasing glory conformant to the image of his Son. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's the problem. This hurts, and this is challenging, and it's hard. It can be very, very difficult. It requires, literally, in biblical language, a dying to self. It requires humility. That's like a bad word. It requires submission. And frankly, I'm not very good at any of those things. I'm really not. Thus the difficulty of giving the space, thus the fear of giving the Lord space to speak. Now, I've heard this process of the Lord speaking and drawing us to himself and increasing our, uh, uh, making our image like that of his sons to this process of refining. You ever heard the song Refiner's Fire? Any like 90s church kids in here? Remember that one? We're not going to sing it, I promise. But the refining process actually is a pretty good metaphor for what we see described in Scripture because in refining of metal, the metal gets dumped in what the equivalent, uh, the equivalent of like boiling lava, yeah? And then it comes out of the fire once it's hot because the impurities have melted to a point where they can be scraped away by the craftsmen. And then either it's pure or it's not. If it's not pure enough yet, it goes back in the dunk tank for another round of the whole dross scrapage. Yeah? It's a pretty unpleasant metaphor, but it's fit for what we see described for our own sanctification in Scripture. And sometimes the metalsmith even beats it with a hammer. Yeah? This is the equivalent of how I have felt when the Lord has had space to speak to me personally over the last few years. Scrapage, dunk tank, flames, hammer blows, right? You get the picture. So I could say it this way. My past experiences, my recent experiences the last few years, and in some cases deeper experiences that go back even further, shape what I expect to experience now and in the future. You follow that? This is the lens I was looking through going into sabbatical. Because my experience was X, my future experience is going to be Y. I expected what I had experienced. And this is true for all of us. We could say it like this. Our expectations are often driven by what we've experienced. We know this. You want me to prove it? Here we go. How many of you have a favorite restaurant? Show of hands. Thank you for demonstrating that your prior experience has dictated what your future experience will be, right? Why do you like that restaurant? Why is it your favorite? Because of what you've experienced. We're informed all the time. What we expect is directly tied to and rooted in what we've experienced in the past. We all do this. This is a human condition. Why do we like one brand of coffee over another? Experience. Why do we shop at one place and not another? Experience. Experience drives the bus so frequently for us in terms of what we expect to happen going forward. But while they can be helpful, we've already established this, while they can be helpful for shaping what we may expect, they are not perfect predictors of what the future experience will look like, right? We know this. You don't actually know when you go to your favorite restaurant that the meal is going to be any good. You really don't know that. You expect it based on experience, but you don't know it. 
our experience simply does not paint the full picture for us. Let me explain what I mean, and I'll tell you a personal story to do so. Here is something that experience has taught me and something I do as a result of experience. I get up in the morning. Bethany already has the coffee pot on because she's a wonderful woman, and I may avail myself of that opportunity. I get dressed, you know, brush teeth, whatever, getting ready to go. And on my way out the door, I ensure that I pick up a giant shield that I then carry with me throughout the day. I bring it into all my interactions. I bring it into prayer meetings. I bring it to church. In fact, it's sitting right here. You can't see it, of course, because that would just be weird. But I can see it. I know what it looks like. I know it's always available to me. I know I can pick it up at any point and set it as a wedge between me and you. I know how to use it. And I'm very good at making sure it's always available to me. Why? Because of past experience. I have learned that not everybody in this world is safe. Not everybody in this world is trustworthy. Not everybody's going to treat you or me with dignity and respect. So it's better to have the shield available and tote it around, cumbersome though it may be, than to risk going without it, right? To risk being exposed, to risk being vulnerable, to risk being hurt. Got to have the shield. It's better to carry the shield around than to get caught off guard and be without it should you need it. It's better to expect the worst than to hope for the best. Well, as you might imagine, carrying the shield around is pretty cumbersome. That's a pretty cumbersome way to live. It's clunky. It's inauthentic. It's hard to see others, in fact, when you have the shield up. Notice that your field of view is obscured. They can't see you. You can't see them. In some cases, that's the way you want it. In some cases, that's just an unintended consequence of raising the shield. I can even, whether incidentally or intentionally, bring the shield into my interactions with the Lord. I can set it up as an obstacle relationally between he and I. So do you see what's happened here? you understand this? I've allowed my past experiences to be what most strongly influences how I live and what I expect. These experiences have, in a sense, become sort of the rule of faith for me, right? The guiding principle in how I live and what I perceive. In the foreword to the book Facing Leviathan, one of the books I read while on sabbatical, Pastor John Tyson puts it this way, often our lives become a text elevated above Scripture. Said another way, often our experiences become a text elevated above Scripture. And if we're not careful, we can do this. So instead of our experiences being uh, something we use to interpret Scripture along with reason and things like tradition, we can actually elevate those things over and above and in the place of where Scripture is supposed to sit. But Scripture is meant to stand above them, not the other way around. Scripture is meant to stand above and let me be clear as we continue here. Experience is not our enemy here. Experience is not some sort of mortal enemy. I'm not meaning to cast that stone. Our experiences do play an important role in shaping who we are, for better or worse. But when our experiences become the sole measure or the chief measure of how we identify ourselves or the thing that most influences what we think of ourselves or think of others or think of the Lord, we have stumbled off course. So, 
I want to do something that's a little bit unusual in our time together, typically here this morning. I want us to breathe deep. I want us to take what we've experienced in the past and actually let it sit silent for a few minutes. Can I ask that of you? Some of you are like, shields up, dude. But instead, what I want to do is let the word of God speak to us about who he is and what he is like. Experience has taught us some of what we believe about who he is, but it's not the best teacher. Scripture is the full picture. Scripture reveals truth. Scripture never deceives. In fact, if experience is the measure that we use to most identify and define who God is, you realize that we're all worshiping different gods? based on what we've experienced? We have to come back to the word. We have to be rooted to the word. So what I want to do is just pour out scripture over us this morning. So we're going to turn the lights down a little. And I'm just going to read aloud to you, all from the Psalms, by the way. I'm not even going to put the words up. I just invite you to sit and soak in the reality of who God is as he describes himself to us in his word. And maybe he has something to say to you through his word this morning. Again, that's the Holy Spirit at work. So let's put the shields down. And let's sit in the word of the Lord. Lord, give us ears to hear your words. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He's a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? He arms me with strength. He makes my way perfect. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on mountain heights. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arm to draw a bronze bow. You've given me your shield to victory. Your right hand supports me. Your help has made me great. You've made a wide path for my feet to keep them from slipping. God is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when the earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud, out of the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and they'll be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. The Lord delights in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. How kind the Lord is, how good he is. So merciful, this God of ours. Each day the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me. And through each night I sing his songs, praying to God, the one who gives me life. The Lord is compassionate 
and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He doesn't deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children. He is tender and compassionate to those who fear him. That's just a fraction of what the word says. It's a handful of verses from a handful of psalms. Just in these verses, look at what the Lord says about himself. He's full of steadfast love. His way is perfect and never failing. He's our refuge, our shield. He strengthens us, supports us. He helps us. He widens our path and steadies us. He's tender towards us. He is kind, merciful, compassionate, good. He hears us. He sees us. He comes to us in order to rescue us. He forgives us. He keeps his promises to us. He gives us life. He delights in us. Do you get the sense, church, that we can put the shields down in the presence of the Lord? He invites us to do that. There's no shield required in the presence of the one who is, in fact, our shield. So letting God help shape our understanding of who he is, what he thinks of us, and how he acts towards us is a powerful shift. And it can widen our field of view beyond what our previous experiences have allowed us to see. So let me get back for a moment to pre-sabbatical wrestling. The day before sabbatical was set to begin, I went to coffee with a friend of mine and I unpacked all this for him and gave him all the reasons why I, you know, I was right to think the way I was thinking because that's what I do. And after I'd finished explaining to him why I was feeling the way I was feeling, he sat back and he listened and he thought for a moment and he said, hey, I just have a few questions. And I thought, okay, shoot. And he said, what do you think your expectations about how this time is going to go says about how you view God? <laughs> I about choked on my coffee, like, okay, Perhaps you misunderstood the intent of this meeting. You're supposed to help me. <laughs> and then he followed up with a second question. And, and also, what do you think your expectations about how this time is going to go says about the way you think God views you? Oh. It was then that I knew I'd made a big mistake calling this meeting in the first place. <laughs> I thought maybe I could fake an illness or like, I got a phone call and like just slip away, but I couldn't. We were too far in at this point to cancel the meeting, so on we pressed. He said the following, isn't it possible, Jeff, that the Lord just may want to delight in you and enjoy being with you during this time and in turn ask you to enjoy being with him? The sad thing here and the embarrassing thing, 
That's the first time I thought about that. First time I'd ever considered, maybe that's the thing. Maybe past experience doesn't have to dictate future experience. Maybe we can experience delight in one, in one another. See, I was so rooted to prior experience, my experiences were acting like blinders for me, preventing me from having this wider field of view that comports with what Scripture actually says. So I was fixed on this transaction, sure that force was going to meet force. There's no room for delight here in the scraping of the dross. I'd forgotten the reality of who God reveals himself to be, as we read about in the Psalms this morning. So my friend went on to say, you know, it's a lot easier to live with the shield up, sense that the shoe is always going to drop, than it is to live vulnerably and hope for something different, because hope is to be vulnerable. And he said, you mentioned how your recent experiences have felt like this, you know, heavy refining sort of process with the impurities being burned and scraped away again and again. Isn't it possible? Here's a wonderful question to ask, by the way. Isn't it possible? that this is the very expectation that the Lord wants to see scraped away during sabbatical. Oh, that one just wrecked me. That was just, it was just rude. <laughs> but he spoke directly to the heart of what was going on. And notice he didn't give me a, a bunch of books to read. He didn't say, hey, here's how to fix this. Here's what you do, X, Y, and Z, it, and then you're good. No, he just listened to me. He was present. He asked questions. And the questions he asked pointed me back to the reality of what God says of himself in Scripture. That's a wonderful friend. So we often count conversion stories in the church, and we're right to do so. There's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes to faith and repentance. We know that. But this was a come-to-Jesus conversation as well. Right? How we talk to one another, these interactions we have with each other, this is iron sharpening iron. These are important conversations. It's not just conversions that matter. It's relational conversations that you have with your coworkers, your employees, your kids, your spouses. All of us have an opportunity to live like this and be like this. And so after this conversation, I had a bunch to chew on, and chew I did. As we went into sabbatical, I was pondering these things. But I actually started to dare to hope that maybe interaction with the Lord could look different than what I'd experienced in the past. Maybe I'd be okay actually putting the shield down, or maybe, maybe I could leave it at home during sabbatical. So, as I mentioned, we were up in the mountains. You're welcome, Bethany. Uh, we were in the Canadian Rockies. We were driving along. I'm going to tell one story here. It illustrates this idea of the Lord's delight in his people. We were reading a book called Sabbath by Dan Allender. Wonderful book, by the way, if you're familiar with it. In the context of the book, he tells a story of the anniversary of his wife's father passing away. And they were, you know, grief-stricken at the memory of it. It's a difficult season and difficult reminder to have. And so they were out for a walk together. And she said, you know, I really would just love the Lord to show his goodness to us in the midst of our grief, just to show up and demonstrate that he's there, that he hears us, he sees us. Do you think that we could stop and ask the Lord to come out and play? That was her phrase. Isn't that a cool phrase? I think we could stop. Ask the Lord to come out and play. So that really struck me. So I was sharing this with Bethany as we were driving. I was like, what a cool moment. And Allender says in the book, as they were stopped and they prayed this, they sat. And just as they were about to leave, they noticed an owl perched on a nearby branch, you know, taking, surveying all of his domain. And later as they watched, he took flight and his expanse momentarily filled the whole horizon for them, just filled the whole sky up above them. And they watched in sort of wonder as this owl took flight. 
And for them, it was a moment of clarity, a moment where they felt the Lord's delight in them. To them, it was a gift the Lord had provided to demonstrate his goodness and show that he was there and he was with them. Very mean, it's not a great story, very meaningful story for them personally. A wonderful experience for them. So Bethany, hearing this and having me tell her this as we're driving, says, hey, that's a wonderful idea. Maybe the Lord will come out and play with us. She said, I would love to see a bear. <laughs> I thought, like, so well, that makes one of us. <laughs> that's how people die on sabbatical, right? Like we're, we're supposed to come back from sabbatical. And I thought back to the Old Testament. You know, the only time that I can recall we find a bear show up in the Old Testament, 42 people get mauled. Anybody know that story? So I'm like, nope, no bear. How about the owl? Can we ask for the owl? I'm like, that's fine. But she's like, no, I want to see a bear. And you know what I did? I put the shield up. Not for fear of the bear, but for fear of being disappointed that the bear wouldn't show up. Better to expect the worst than be let down and disappointed, right? Shield up. Well, I kid you not, Within the span of five, maybe ten minutes, a black bear ambles out across the road in front of our car. And we pull over and we snap this photo. What? <laughs> and the bear just kind of saddled up next to the car and played with us. Probably five minutes. Just sat, scratched his back on the branches, poked around. It was just for us. The Lord loves to show his goodness to his kids. He delights in us. That's what the word tells us. He's willing even to come out and play with us. So this experience shifted something for me internally during sabbatical. I thought, well, that doesn't, that doesn't fit with my frame of view. That doesn't fit with my lens of expecting the worst. Like the Lord has just blown the doors off my expectations. And I found myself just filled with gratitude for what he had done, the way he had shown up and shown off who he is, that he delighted in us so much that he would come and deliver on a, a, a prayer that was so, in my opinion, blindly uttered. Gratitude was just this natural wellspring that rose up because the King of Kings and Lord of Lords demonstrated he cares about us. And from this posture of gratitude, I just felt so humbled that the creator and sustainer of everything would do such a thing for us, even us, even though my shield was up. So we've made this graphic, Pastor Jim drew this, it's sort of the cycle of delight giving way to gratitude, and then when gratitude was expressed, feeling humbled by it, and when I was humbled, I was more able to see and delight in the Lord again, and so this cycle sort of was entered into on sabbatical that was really just so sweet for us. And here's what I find perhaps the most interesting as I process this since coming back. I think without the prior season, without the prior experiences, without the conversation that forced me to widen the lens, I don't know that my heart's ready to see and experience this. So all those things that we experience, all those things that seem like missteps, all those times that seem like failures, the Lord takes and fashions for good. And he promises that also in his words. Romans 8.28, if you want to look that one up. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying go out after church this afternoon and pray for a bear to show up in Nampa. 
Although I understand we had a moose on the loose here recently. But what I am suggesting is that you can expect that the Lord delights in you. Scripture says it. It's not just me or my words. It's not just my experience. The word says that he loves you and he delights in you. And he in turn invites us to delight in him. But when our experiences replace scripture as our primary guide, the thing that we use to identify ourselves and identify the Lord, we can have a hard time believing this. I get it, believe me, I live there, believe me. I don't live in the delight cycle. My status quo is more shield up. But here's the beautiful thing. There's no shield necessary with the Lord. There's no shield required. He is our shield. And here's some more good news. Turns out God's not limited by our previous experiences or by our expectations. Amen? In fact, if he was, you know that he no longer is God now. That ikad thing we've been talking about, he no longer has that if he is bound by our expectations and what we've experienced before. Scripture tells us who he is. You know what it says about who he is and what he can do? It says he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So to him be glory in the church both now and forevermore. And all God's people said to that, amen. Yeah, man, uh, we were just saying off air, but I'll say it again. Really cool. This was a great message. I felt like you just blended a lot of cool stuff together. And really, I mean, I guess big thing is thank you, God, for just what he did in your life and that we get to come along for that ride. And uh, we got to see God play even on Sunday, you know, because as you shared, I think a lot of people, it really affected them. And I think they learned a lot of cool stuff. So kind of the heart of your, the beginning part of your message was this expectation you had, this expectation of what God was going to do and then what he ended up doing and what that looks like. And so um, talk about that, like God changing his mind, God switching things up. You know, we have a consistent God and yet he also sometimes like to likes to mess with things. Yeah, that's true. I think he's consistent on the things that are worth being consistent on. I mean, we know he's never changing, right? So the concept of God changing his mind, there's lots of debate in the scholarly world about that. I personally fall on the line where God doesn't change his mind. We use human language to describe something that's beyond human understanding, meaning the divine. So we think we say things like God repented, God regretted. Well, those are anthropom- anthropomorphisms uh, used to describe as best we can what's going on in the divine world that makes sense to us in our human context, right? We're so limited in what we can use to describe who he is. So I wouldn't say that God changes his mind, although, again, there's some people who debate that point. Uh, But in terms of his consistency, we do find that played out in Scripture over and over again. Things like the gospel, for example. Like, how are people brought into salvation and how are people redeemed? Through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, period. That never changes. He never deviates from that. But there's plenty of room we see in terms of how the Lord chooses to interact with his kids throughout Scripture for us to still be taken by surprise sometimes based on what he does. And I love that about him and his character. It's such a good line, and I love that, that, And I think even when we talk about scripture, right, because we talked about this in terms of having a high view of scripture, that God is not just whimsical, changing his mind, like we can see throughout scripture, 
his words have consistency because he has consistency, right? That he is who he says he is. And yet, even in scripture, we can see um, God does surprise people. God does. He loves, he seems to delight in doing things like, I love him using Sarah because she can't have a kid. Why does he like to bring life out of barrenness? I don't know. That's part of who he is. So there's a consistency in the things that he does and the way he goes about them. But he's so willing to do things differently each time. Yeah, I think one thing that he's consistent about is he consistently does things that are impossible. Hmm. Like you think about story after story from the Old Testament, even David slaying Goliath, for example, that's impossible. Representation Hmm. of somebody who has no power overcoming a power that is over and above, far and above something that person should be able to subdue. But what a great example and metaphor for what we see played out again and again with the Lord coming to his people in order to rescue them as we read in the Psalms from Sunday. It's exactly what we see in the situation with Jesus as well, right? He comes yeah. to us to rescue us, overcoming a, an obstacle, sin and death, that we have no hope otherwise of overcoming. So he consistently yeah. shows up and does these things that are just, from a human perspective, absolutely impossible. I think that's so helpful, especially looking at Scripture, because now we're discovering all these cool things about understanding, you know, those first century cultures or older cultures, right? Understanding some of these passages that we read and now that we can look at some of the the data from archaeology we're like oh that makes so much more sense and we can kind of feel like oh no have we been misinterpreting but so often like you just said his consistency makes it so that we're not misunderstanding the gospel right just because we discover something that provides new color and new depth the story is the same story the big things of the bible are still the big things of the bible and they have not changed because god has clearly communicated Now, I'm blessed to live in this time where we are gaining more understanding and color and depth, but I also don't need to be worried that the tenets of my faith are going to, we're going to find out that actually Jesus was like, oh, I, no, I didn't say any of that Mm -hmm. stuff about forgiveness. You know, that stuff is, is pretty ironclad. Yeah. I would quote uh, Jack Beck, who's a dear friend of ours here at the church, helps lead our Israel treks. Uh, We're going next year as well with Jack. He's like a real life Indiana Jones. Yeah. He's a a wonderful scholar as well, trained in biblical languages and theology that leads excursions throughout the Holy Land multiple times a year. He's come to speak here a number of times. We're privileged by the relationship we have with him. He says it this way. He says, the things that are most important, God communicates multiple times in multiple ways. So again, the reality of who Jesus is, we find that painted throughout Scripture. The reality Mm -hmm. that God is all-sufficient and all-glorious and all-powerful, we find that printed over and over again in the pages of Scripture. Those things that are most valuable for us as Christians, as believers— God makes very clear numerous times through numerous voices in numerous ways. Yeah. And we can have grace on those other things, right? (laughs) Because, you know what? I may be wrong about this. Maybe we'll get to heaven and be like, oh, you were right about that one passage that Mm -hmm. said something. But I think we're all going to be in agreement that he is who he says he was. Right. And this kind of brought me, you know, we were talking before some stuff that I always like to think about is what stuff you had to leave on the cutting room floor. Right. And so you were talking about this idea of, If we take this to a a crazy extreme of like, hey, God wants us to interact. God wants to give us these these interactions with him. He wants to bless us. Well, then we always run into that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Such a fun topic, right, where people take that uh, to what you and I both believe is uh, an an unhealthy extreme. Yeah, well, certainly it's a distortion of what the true gospel of Christ is as presented in Scripture. I'm not entirely sure the history of how the prosperity gospel developed here in the West— but it's done quite a bit of damage and left quite a few people stranded and desperate and broken in the aftermath of their not understanding. Why is it that I'm asking for these things and I'm not 
receiving carte blanche what I'm asking God for. I was told that he would operate in this way if I did X, Y, and Z. Well, again, to your point from earlier, God is not bound by us in any measure. Yeah, he does encourage us to ask. He does encourage us to have faith. He does promise to show his goodness to us. He does bless us. Ultimately, in Christ, we know that in Christ, all blessing will be ours eternally when we're raised to glory as he's been raised. But there's no promise anywhere in Scripture of health, wealth, and prosperity for those who believe in Jesus. In fact, what does he ask us to lay down? Our very lives. He asks us to lay down these things that the world searches for and pines after so that we can have life abundantly through him. Yet somehow the prosperity gospel has taken what the real gospel is in Scripture and distorted it. So those things that Jesus asks us to lay down in order to follow him have somehow become the goal of the mm. entire faith journey, which is just so sad. The uh, the goal of a um, prophet who was God who came and said, give everything up. And I'm also, I'm a homeless, you know, prophet. Uh, my goal is to make a, a nation of incredibly wealthy people, mm. right? And I think that's, no, wait, oh, darn. You know, I think, you know, when we were talking, it's it's not only not representative of what Jesus said or even his forebears. And, you know, we have a tradition that has its, er, like, origination in God rescuing slaves. Right. And yet we've become part of the empire. We've become, you know, it's like we've left the rebellion and joined Darth Vader. And we're like, yep, this is the good, this is the good stuff, you know? Right. Yeah, and who did Jesus say he came for? He came to the lost house of Israel. Like that was his primary ministry, knowing that he would mm. create disciples who produced disciples, who, who made more disciples, who would reproduce and have more disciples, right? And on and on it goes till now here we sit, you know, 2,000 years right. later. So, yeah, the idea that he, he picks the best and the brightest and that he chooses to bless abundantly with material things is just nowhere yeah. to be found in Scripture. Well, I mean, so he himself— yeah. He himself emptied himself, right? We find in the book of Philippians. Mm. It's the greatest act of humility that the world's ever seen. Yeah. The Son of God himself deciding to come and dwell in human flesh so that we be, we could be reconciled to the Father. I mean, that's the true gospel. That's the message worth repeating and, and proclaiming from the pulpit every week in every church across all of America and other, other places too. But the prosperity gospel of, of at least the American church, uh, unfortunately, distorts that and chooses to, to promote something else. Yeah. I love the passage of two where God seems to rebel against that usage when we use him in a way that he doesn't want to be used. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the taking the ark into battle against the Philistines. Right. And God's like, no, I'm going to let you lose. I'm going to let my the, the most sacred object that's ever been created in terms of wor the worship of our God was taken by the Philistines. And God allowed it to happen because he's like, no, I'm not I'm, I'm not just a magic box you can carry around and tell me to do what you want me to do. Right. Yeah. On the other side of that, though, because you know, as we talked about this in sermon prep, and there can also be this idea of, well, I can't ask for anything. I need to just struggle. Um, there's just barely enough, and I just gotta. I mean, everyone's against us, and it's just terrible, and I can't ask God anything, so I'm not gonna ask because if I ask and it doesn't happen, does it? So I think there is another side of that that we can get too freewheeling, you know, asking for whatever we want and expecting God to jump when we call. But also we cannot take advantage of the relationship that and that God offers and the boldness with which he asks us to come into his presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what you're describing is a pridefulness, just pride manufactured or pride represented in two different ways. Mm. Number one, pride that I should be able to get all that I want whenever I want from a God who actually exists to serve me and my purposes here on earth. That's prideful. Or another distortion of arrogance is to think so much of myself and so poorly of myself that I can't get my eyes elevated onto the one who promises abundance of life. That is just a distortion, another form of pride 
I mean, I've, I very much sympathize with folks who come from that posture, having walked the story I've walked in my own mm. uh, faith journey as well. But it's still pride, nonetheless. Let's call it what it is. Mm. It's a pride issue. It's a distortion uh, of who the Lord asks us mm. to be. And at the root is pride. You did a great job, I think, showing that with that image of the shield. You know, that, that we put our shield up when we don't ask, right? Because we are, are we not asking because we're afraid he's not going to come through? Because really, what I'm afraid is, I'll look bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not really afraid about the reputation of God. He's a big boy. <laughs> yep. He can worry. His glory is not my... I need to glorify him. I don't need to worry about him getting his glory. Right. Right? So if I'm concerned about asking because I'm afraid of looking bad, am I, if I'm afraid of asking because I'm not sure it lines up with his heart, that's different. But even then, there's a relationship there. Mm-hmm. And talking about relationship, I want to end on just really talking about this interaction you had with a friend at a coffee shop where you said, I'm wrestling and, and his questions. And I believe the Holy spirit being in that moment, in that conversation. And that's a beautiful part of what we get to do is when we gather together, you know, two or more, God shows up and we see amazing things happen in community. So talk about that, that friendship. And cause I just think the fact that you were able to do that in community made a huge difference and we got to reap the benefit. Yeah. Community, if I'm being honest and putting the shield down here and talking with you, does not come easily for me. Uh, I prefer, as I said on Sunday, to walk around with a shield up. Well, the shield is a natural barrier, rather an, an unnatural barrier to true community because I never actually let you in. Mm-hmm. I never let you see what's happening internally. I just project an image of myself that I think is going to benefit me or please you, in some cases, both of those things. So the idea of actually living in authentic community where we put the shields down, boy, that's challenging for me. And I'm just now learning as a 38-year-old man what living in authentic community looks like and the value of it. Because for years, like I said, I've walked around with the shield up pretending and imagining what true relationship can look like. And my experiences have sort of forced my hand in that way, right? Because the shield is a protection, uh, a means of protection for me. But actually, it serves as a means to harm me, ultimately, when it is a barrier to real authentic community. I mean, the, the church is called to be a community of believers. How many times do we find in the New Testament, the church or the ecclesia, the ones who are called out, described as uh, a group, a community, certainly more than one, over and over and over again. That's who we're called to be. So, for me, that's part of this discovery process that, that occurred even over sabbatical and over probably the last 12 months in particular. This idea that to really flourish, to really understand um, more about who I am and, and really to understand what it means to have eyes that are turned towards others, actually have an outward focus, well, community has to be a part of that. If I walk around with a shield up at all times in every relationship and every encounter, I can't see anything. I can't see anyone. I'm just fixated again. There's the pride coming back into it. I'm fixated on myself, on my needs, on my image, and I have no opportunity to have a field of view that's wider than that. Hmm. So in the absence of community, we die. But with genuine community, when we let the shield drop, and the shield doesn't have to drop for every human being, by the way. There are people who are in our lives who we need to have. We need two shields in some cases hmm. when it comes to relationship with certain individuals. I'm certainly not advocating for a boundaryless, shieldless universe where everyone you know, walks around in full vulnerability to every other human being. That's not safe. That's not wise. But in the context of real community, brothers and sisters in the Lord who love us, 
who care about us, who are growing in wisdom in the Holy Spirit, the shield's not necessary, right. at least not all the time in those cases. And certainly, yeah. as we talked about Sunday, the shield is not necessary in the presence of the Lord, who is mm. our shield. So yeah, yeah, community is something I'm learning. It's uh, It's been a hard road to, to figure out what vulnerability looks like, uh, given my past and some of my history, but I'm learning and I'm growing. And the community piece, as we heard on Sunday in the story of my friend and I going to coffee, was instrumental in changing the whole trajectory of sabbatical. I mean, mm. we don't, I don't have the sermon from Sunday, apart from that right. interaction and that demonstration of what Christian community can look like. I think the way he said at the end was, I don't, you don't have this, this time on sabbatical, if not for all the work that's been done before, which involved community, mm-hmm. right? You didn't go into a counselor's office and talk to a mirror, right? Yeah. There's that's community, but also this conversation with this friend. And I, I wonder too, when people come in, I thought that's a really good point that we do still need to have the shield up sometimes this side of heaven, I believe part of what's going to make heaven so awesome is that we can walk around in total vulnerability knowing everyone can see me as I am because we've been perfected and I don't have any fear, right? That people will see me as God sees me. That's going to be awesome. What a wonderful picture. And even Jesus though, did not walk around in full vulnerability all the time, Mm -hmm. right? He was vulnerable with his 12, right? But even in in there, he had the three that he was extra vulnerable with, right? You know, there are those layers that are wise, Right. So we're not asking you to walk around. And even when you come to crossroads, um, there isn't you will get hurt sometimes. Right. We are going to make mistakes. We're going to see people wrong. We're going to say the wrong thing, even with people that we thought we could trust to let in. And that's where we all need to submit to Jesus and realize that ultimately the one we're vulnerable with, the one that we keep our shield down with every time is the one who we can trust completely. And that's him. Amen. Yeah. So as you come listening today, you know, we're not perfect. We're trying to figure out how to put our shields down. Uh, hopefully today you were uh, prompted to find those relationships that you can put your shield down, but start with that relationship with God, the one who you can trust every time, who knows you and who loves you and sees you. He sees behind the shield anyway. So put it down and, and understand that he loves you and he wants to do work to help you. So thanks, Jeff. It was a great message this week. And thanks for listening, you guys. We'll talk to you next week.